I think that it would be um, irresponsible for us to be fighting so hard for people to have access to uh, platforms and, you know, being able to have um, access to different applications without really thinking about what happens next. And so I think that for advocates, uh, both public interest advocates, um, human rights and civil rights advocates, lots of different people are at a place where I think we can acknowledge this is a new frontier that's going to require not only new ideas, but political will to say that as much as we want freedom and free speech and all the wonderful things that come with an open internet, we also want to ask, be able to ask questions about how are platforms collecting and managing and using our data? How do we address uh, you know, bias and in artificial intelligence? or protect free speech while eliminating disinformation. I think these are all legitimate questions that we ask in every other industry, that we put certain guardrails that as much as we want you to benefit from whether it's medicine or have access to certain food, I'm like, we still have guidelines. And so I think it's okay for us to say that you should be able to enjoy something and at the same time have regulations to protect the most disenfranchised users. Okay, so one of the things that you said at Duke a couple of weeks ago was that usually the people with the most disparate or suffering the most disparate harms are the people with the least amount of resources, communities that have the least amount of digital literacy, for example. The only way they can get any response is if they get together with, I loved when you said this, 10,000 of their friends to get any sort of answers. Um, that's a great description of justice in America. Um, but here we are uh, talking about setting up, you know, maybe a new power structure uh, to, to deal with this issue. And uh, we want to make sure everybody's at the table from the beginning. So how do we do that? Well, I think that sometimes I don't want to overthink um, that part of the problem. I think that sometimes it means asking about who's at your table, right? When we're doing some of our, our most like thoughtful, uh, you know, discussions and we're thinking about, well, maybe I should back up. I, one of the things that I get concerned about is that when I work on um, broadband policy and then also think about how other people talk about, you know, platform regulation, privacy rights, and things like that. In general, I think that when we're talking to people in think tanks and advocates, our most thoughtful policies tend to be reserved for people who are already connected. And so when the people who are already connected are thinking about policies, I don't think that they're always aware of how that might impact new years users, people who don't necessarily have like um, uh, digital literacy in their homes. You know, I think that when you think about if you are um, in a home where you have at least one other person who uses technology, that you are more likely to use technology. When we think about some of the most disconnected uh, families, we know that uh, if you take, for example, in immigrant households, if parents who are non-English speakers um, are in the home, that the children are less likely to have access to technology. And part of that might be for reasons that maybe they're leaving countries where they don't trust the government and don't want to bring tools of surveillance into their home. But it doesn't matter why. The point is that we are dealing with populations that sometimes have legitimate reasons for not having access, even if they wanted to. They genuinely might make that decision that they're not sure. I'm not sure what happens next. If I bring this into my home, who can hear me? Who can see me? So 
I think that those are all questions that we should be thinking through when we're thinking about how does that apply to, you know, policies about how do we start regulating tech? You know, I made that comment about if you have a complaint, you have to get together with 10,000 of your friends, because a lot of the times the people who are uh, very often the most disadvantaged in these conversations, the people that we're not necessarily inviting into those ideation sessions are the people that have to start their movements by shaming people online and getting together with their friends. If you complain to a government agency about how your information was collected, for example, to the FTC, it's a reactionary agency. So you literally have to have thousands of the same complaint to get any sort of redress and enforcement. And so that's why I'm saying some of these systems aren't set up for people who are new to the ecosystem. They are meant to accommodate people who are regular users and speak the language. So when we're thinking forward thinking about our policies, we need to think about what are the policies that we need that set up guardrails that protect everyone, not just the people who are uh, you know, regular repeat players in digital ecosystem, but the people that are at the margins where maybe they just got there. And I think about the millions of people who opened an email account for the first time last year. Like, think about that, that in 2020, there were millions of people who opened an email account for the first time. And so I think sometimes when we're talking to connected populations, there's an assumption that if I'm online, you're online. But what we don't think about is the uh, right before the pandemic, literally almost one third of the U.S., was struggling with some sort of reliable connectivity, whether that was an access issue, a, a speed issue, a deployment issue, an affordability issue, they were struggling with it. So the thing is, if we have one third of the country that was addressing some sort of barrier to adoption, then that means that we're essentially creating policies among the connected without always thinking about the people at the margins. It sure makes sense. I, uh, I read a lot about um, consumers who are angry at companies for cheating them over cable bills or, or whatnot, you know, consumer frustrations. And I will often joke, uh, well, I don't joke, uh, customer service agents look at how many Twitter followers that you have before they respond to you. Yes. And if you don't have 10,000 Twitter followers, you have no consumer rights. Yes, that happens sometimes. And the that's part of the, it's a blessing and a curse. Like it's really exciting to be able to get on, you know, social media platforms and to be able to demand redress that you really couldn't have done like years ago. I mean, like not when I was in high school. <laughs> so, you know, now you can have a high school student taking on a company <laughs> with their Twitter account. And so I think that that's part of the the blessing and the curse, right? The blessing is that it's amazing that you have the power to do that. And we actually have um, deputized new people with agency. So there's something really beautiful about that. But at the same time, there's also something that makes you a little bit uncomfortable because if you're the one who only has 20 followers, you don't know who to call. You don't really have any protections. Then what? And so you're reliant on an 800 number where you're hoping that someone cares. And so I I do want to point out, like, you know, I think those kinds of examples are all around us. And I think that, you know, to your primary question about how can we expand who's at the table, I don't always think that that's something that requires government intervention. I think that sometimes that's something that's about us asking questions about who's in our meetings us asking questions about who are we endorsing in our filings 
and our white papers and who are we endorsing as thought leaders and citing in our footnotes and our endnotes. There are lots of ways that we can bring people in with endorsements that don't require formal interventions. What worries me is that when we have the opportunity to ask about who's at our table, when we have the chance to question, why does everyone in this circle look just like me? It worries me that sometimes we're so focused on how do we make room for new people, thinking that it requires some sort of intervention, when in fact, I think those are things that start in our own circles. And that might mean deciding on who are we going to cite in our papers? Who are we going to high five in our end notes and our footnotes? Who are we going to elevate and deputize as thought leaders when we you know, use our social media and go into meetings and conferences? I think those are things that are small things that are right in front of us within arm's length. And what worries me is that when I go into meetings with advocates and you know, really accomplished people from think tanks, we'll sometimes be in the room. And I feel like when you look around the room and everyone looks like you and has similar experiences like you, instead of asking, what can we do to make room for someone new at the table? I think that very often there's a, there's a moment that it's almost like people pass over being able to ask, like, how can we make room for someone new and assume that the people that are at the table are adequate for making policies that apply to the entire diverse and dynamic population. So just to your earlier point about making room at the table, I think there are lots of things that are right in front of us that we can do if we choose to do so. So, so I think if I had to boil this down to, um, to one main point, um, let's say we all agree or enough people in society agree that Instagram is doing things that that hurt teenagers and we want Instagram to stop and right now it seems like Instagram is not stopping so how does society force Instagram to, to do something and I I want to I want first of all I wonder what your top line reaction is to that what, what structure should be in place or maybe already is in place that we're not using that would bring Instagram to these social norms that people seem to agree on well I don't think that um, any of our policy should focus on any one company. Uh, I think that in general, the things that we see in some of the companies that trouble us the most actually happen to a lesser degree with also smaller and mid-sized companies. I think they just don't make the headlines. Uh, when we're talking about what regulation is required, I think that this is a question that is deeply rooted in not only thinking about um, uh, content moderation, privacy issues, but also, you know, antitrust issues. Because part of the reason why some of these things have been able to become norms is because there's no, there's no legitimate like player to challenge some of those practices. So I, I do remember being um, in a conversation with a tech company, and I remember someone pulled me inside and said, "Look, Francella, the things we're doing aren't illegal." And the fact that the person felt like that was the explanation, like it's not illegal. And I think that it speaks to the fact that and it, it reveals the type of hubris that's involved when you can have market players that essentially can eliminate competition. Um, you can help 
uh, almost scare off regulators from, you know, seeking antitrust remedies or at least investigating those things. There are very few internal accountability measures that are there to set up those guardrails. So you don't have the same structures of boards of directors and those types of uh, um, at least internal um, guardrails that might deter companies from bad behavior. So there's a confluence of, of, of different circumstances that allow for that. And I think that instead of just focusing on like um, one or two like bad actors, I think that in general, we need to ask more existential questions about like, how did we get here? Like, why are, why do they even feel comfortable doing what they're doing? And it, it, it just concerns me that I think um, we just don't have the, the combination of the political will and expertise in the government regulators that are actually responsible for dreaming up regulation. Yeah, if, if the bar is it's legal, that, that leaves a lot of wide open space. Does that scare you? That actually uh, came from, it scares, <clears throat> it actually was a conversation that I had. Um, it was before the pandemic and it was just, it, it warranted a pause because yeah. I think the person heard themselves say it out loud and they meant it. And so, but that was a reflection of a larger issue. And I think that we're in a moment when I, I think that, um, um, that that is acceptable and that there aren't a lot of people, you know, cops on the beat to challenge that. 